The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was, along with Marx and Freud, one of the great intellectual bomb throwers of the 19th century. They created what's been called the hermeneutics of suspicion against traditional values. His name was Friedrich Nietzsche. Born in 1844 and so brilliant as a student that his professor remarked, he will simply be able to do anything he wants to do. What he wanted to do and what he ultimately did have been the subject of much debate, and he didn't have long to do it as the final ten years or so of his fairly short life saw him drifting into madness, perhaps due to syphilis, perhaps due to a brain tumor, perhaps, if we're to ignore medicine and available facts and imagine these things poetically, perhaps because his brain thought too hard, expanded too much, was too daring, and finally blew itself out like a supercomputer that reaches for consciousness before falling Prometheus-like back into the darkness of dull machinery. But even if his creative powers were cut short by dementia in his mid-forties, he got an early start, the youngest ever to hold a chair in classical philology at his university, and writing close to a book a year for a decade. We could do an entire podcast on his philosophy, of course, but in the history of literature, he's also important as a cultural avatar, an intellectual history game changer, an influence on the writers who came after, a thinker who poked and prodded and provoked, and a supremely seductive prose stylist. I have many stylistic possibilities, he said once, the most multifarious art of style that has ever been at the disposal of one man. Typical Nietzschean bombast, of course, and yet it's hard to disagree. Richie Robertson joins us for a discussion of Friedrich Nietzsche today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. Maybe you're in your post-holiday mode the Monday after Thanksgiving, if you're here in America, or maybe you're somewhere else, or catching up to this one later, that's fine too. Nietzsche isn't going away anytime soon. He'll be relevant for a while. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because we read him. That's one thing. He's not someone who needs to be assigned in order to make it onto the nightstand pile. Professors of philosophy can decide which works have currency, which ones are outdated, which ones are essential to some extent, but not with Nietzsche. Nietzsche gets bought and read by people who are not knee-deep in the academy. He appeals in a certain kind of way. Let's see if we can figure out why that is, and Professor Robertson will help in that regard. But first, let's get some of the who-what-wearing out of the way. Nietzsche was born in 1844 in Leipzig, which was then part of Prussia. His father was a Lutheran pastor. He was interested in music and literature early on. He was an amateur composer, and he later befriended some famous musicians like Wagner and started hanging around some other composers, and his own efforts earned him some mocking criticism. 
one such professional composer years later said of a Nietzschean work, quote, it is the most undelightful and the most anti-musical draft on musical paper that I have faced in a long time, end quote. There's something charming about Nietzsche's life. The biography of Nietzsche is charming. The prose and the works are all him making these grand assertions, fighting battles, promoting strength, including his own strength. He's on a kind of will-to-power bender much of the time in his works. He's drunk on his own philosophical and cultural critic Kool-Aid. And then you read the life, and he's sort of a sad figure, more comic than cosmic. He was often sickly. His eyesight was terrible. He had a few strokes at a fairly young age. He wrote in a handwriting that hardly anyone else could read. He was desperately in love with a woman who refused his marriage proposals multiple times. Others laughed at him behind his back. He was so addicted to painkillers and sedatives, he wrote out his own prescriptions and signed them Dr. Nietzsche. He loved art, he loved Greek tragedy, he loved music, and in a famous incident, he raced across a plaza and threw his arms around the neck of a horse, weeping and hoping to protect it from being flogged, and then collapsed to the ground. In the end, he lapsed into dementia, living a third of his adult life, paralyzed, addled with pneumonia, clinically insane, while his sister, a raging anti-Semite, picked through his works and published them for her own benefit more than his. He was a man of strong opinions. He loved Dostoevsky and hated George Eliot. He loved Emerson and hated Socrates. He died in 1900, hardly famous at the time, though that would soon change. In Germany, the anarchists picked him up. In England, they thought he was Blake's intellectual heir. Later, the world wars entangled him with German militarism and the concept of an Aryan Ubermensch. There's enough in Nietzsche to make those questions complicated, and different thinkers and biographers and generations of people have settled on different views of Nietzsche. We won't try to resolve those here. Instead, let's outline his basic project and how it intersects with literature. I referred to a phrase at the beginning, hermeneutics of suspicion against traditional values. What these writers suggest is that there are hidden meanings, subtext, that literature and life, too, is not what it seems. Below the surface is where the real action is. There's a sense when reading these writers of, you're all getting this wrong, you've all gotten this wrong, let me explain how things really are. Or maybe it's, everything you thought you knew is superficial. Let me tell you what's underlying all of this. For Freud, it was something like, you think this behavior is based on conscious decisions and, and morality, conventional morality, but there's a deep unconscious that's driving what people think and do. And that unconscious is more connected to sexuality than anyone has recognized before. For Marx, it was money capitalism and class struggle that drove big changes in society. Nietzsche was looking at issues of morality. He said, where do we get these morals, these values, these conceptions of ourself and society? And what if they're false? What if they've been supplied by some vested interest, a Christian church perhaps, that no one really believes in anymore? What if we're all just going through the motions now, but without the genuine belief 
that might have made such things true. What if God is dead? What crazy hole will that leave in society? What abyss will we face then? Where are we headed if we don't have Christianity to control us? That's one of the key questions when looking at the individual, right? Well, the planet today, in 2022, has 8 billion people on it. Who or what will keep all those people in line? Belief in heaven and hell? But what if that isn't true and people, well, what if people believe it anyway? What does that mean? Are we all limiting ourselves by pretending to follow this moral system that tells us to be humble and modest and fear God and avoid sin? Does that limit our ability to be as great as we can be? As great as we ought to be? The idea is seductive to a certain personality type and a certain frame of mind at a certain period of life. And I'll go ahead and say it's often young males who are eager to test their own limits to defy death and so on. And it's people who resent society for other reasons who find their way to Nietzsche. It's that impulse that draws them toward this worldview of Nietzsche's that, hey, other people might be botched and bungled, but you and me, we're bigger than that, aren't we? We're great. That doesn't mean that everyone who reads Nietzsche is headed for the sign-up sheet at the Nazi party, but as we'll discuss with Professor Robertson, there's something stimulating, even joyous, about just challenging your own preconceptions, which Nietzsche does and asks us to do. Nietzsche, at his best and most useful, says, hey, don't be lazy and incurious. Think what you want, but know why you're thinking it. Don't just take what's handed to you, whether that's religion or morality or conventional wisdom of any kind. He says, how much truth does a spirit endure? How much truth does it dare? More and more that became for me the real measure of value. Do you hear that call to courage? The call to be brave and intellectually honest, to go where the truth is, even if it feels transgressive or dangerous, or is at odds with everything society wants you to think. What's exciting about this is that rejecting Nietzsche can feel as invigorating as accepting him. He's that kind of a sparring partner. People might say, well, Christianity has dropped from 98% of, of European Europe, Europeans used to identify as Christians. 98% of them did. Now that's 79%. And even among people who self-identify as Christians, Belief in the literal aspects of the Bible has declined from its height of 86% to its present-day mark of 45%. We attribute this to a growing awareness of science and an understanding of the scientific method. And we cannot dismiss the possibility that corruption and scandals have eroded faith in the leaders of the church and the institution as a whole. That's what some people might say. I'm making those numbers up. I'm just giving you a sense of the type of discourse about Christianity fading in importance that doesn't resonate so much. Does that spur you to anything? You read that and you think, okay, fine, maybe I'll, I'll examine those statistics, see what they're based on. But that's pretty reasonable. That's consistent with some broad and well-known patterns that put some factual flesh on the skeleton of what's happening in a broad sense. People don't believe as much as they did 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 
500 years ago, and I'm sure the church is doing what it can to attract new members, and that's natural of them to do that, and so on. Now, listen to this famous passage from Nietzsche and see if you have the same kind of response. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There you think, oh my God, look at look at how important, how central, how all-encompassing a belief uh, that the belief in Christianity was. Who are we to question that? Who are we to pull away from that or pull that away from a society? Are we sure we're ready for what comes next? Do we have sacred games lined up? Are we ready to, to do something in place of the belief in God that is has been draining away from Europe? Does it create a vacuum that human beings can fill? God explained so much. And what, it, what belief in God didn't explain, it said, don't worry about that. I've got you. I've got a plan. Can human beings ever recreate the kind of comfort and security and structure and balm to the spirit that religion in Europe did, the Christian church did, maybe, and maybe not, or maybe God isn't dead, or maybe the problem isn't as dramatic as all that, but let's wrestle with the ideas here. And Nietzsche does it with God and with art and with being an individual and lots of other ideas too. Here's how he begins his book, The Antichrist. What is good? Everything that heightens the feeling of power in man, the will to power, power itself. What is bad? Everything that is born of weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power is growing, that resistance is overcome. Not contentedness, but more power. Not peace, but war. Not virtue, but fitness. Renaissance virtue, virtue, virtue that is morally free. The virtue that he's describing there traces back to Machiavelli. This is Nietzsche, the philologist, who's tracking words and their multiple meanings over time. He's noticing that the word virtue was is used in modern terms to mean moral. We say someone is virtuous when their conduct matches a kind of moral standard that society approves of. Machiavelli's society had that kind of virtue that was one of the connotations of the word, but there was another virtue that meant something free of morals, something closer to what we might call effective or a quality. You hear that passage and you think, do I believe that a quiet life is going to be a happy one? Do I think that bliss is being content with what I have? Maybe a family that I'm joined to taken care of, maybe three square meals a day, a television to entertain us, a roof over our heads, and me going to work and paying taxes and not raising too much of a fuss, church on Sunday mornings, Sunday school for the kids. Will I really be content with that? 
Or should I be out there doing more? Seizing power for myself. Isn't that my destiny? Isn't that more fulfilling? Isn't that quiet, tax-paying life just what the people in power want me to think is happiness? Because they want to hold all the power. They don't want me to grab it from them. And so you spin into this world of ideas. What do I think? Why do I think it? What do I want? Who taught me to want it? You don't have to follow Nietzsche to be stimulated by him. And Nietzsche is not just in favor of breaking everything and smashing it all up or rejecting all societal norms and institutions. Here he is talking about Amor Fati, loving one's fate, and his desire to affirm things in life. He says, quote, I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who make things beautiful. Amor Fati, let that be my love henceforth. I do not want to wage war against what is ugly. I do not want to accuse. I do not even want to accuse those who accuse. Looking away shall be my only negation. And all in all and on the whole, someday I wish to be only a yes-sayer. You read a passage like that and you want to go be great. You don't have to be selfish and evil, I don't think. You don't have to read that and say, and so I'm going to become a titan of the tech world and exploit my workers and become as rich as hell selling junk that nobody needs. You can read that passage and think, I'm going to go paint that masterpiece. I'm going to go build houses for the homeless. I'm going to go admire the sunsets and fall in love and coach Little League and drive meals to the elderly on Thanksgiving morning. The key to reading Nietzsche, for me, is that you get to have this dialogue with this guy who's half genius, half crackpot, even before he became full crackpot. He's filled with these fascinating, compelling ideas presented in this fascinating, compelling way. But, listeners, I'm just a guy reading books, and I have this dangerous tendency to treat my own reading as the way that other people read, and I have an even more dangerous tendency to not know what I'm talking about, really. And I have an even more dangerous tendency to talk when I should be listening. So let's solve all three of those problems at once by bringing out Professor Richie Robertson so I can learn about Friedrich Nietzsche from him. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny 
in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Professor Richie Robertson, a fellow of the Queen's College, Oxford, and the Emeritus Schwartz-Taylor Professor of German at the University of Oxford. His other books include Goethe, A Very Short Introduction, and The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790. He's here today to discuss his work Friedrich Nietzsche from the Critical Lives series by Reaction Books. Professor Robertson, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. So I wanted to start with Nietzsche's grip on his readers. Yeats called him a strong enchanter whose writings mm. give a, a curious, astringent joy, which are yes. great quotes. And it's what I feel myself whenever I read Nietzsche. There's charisma and attraction, but I also feel a bit uneasy. So why don't we start with what makes Nietzsche's work so compelling? Well, you feel you in the, in the presence, indeed in the grip, of a very strong personality. Mm, yeah. And unlike many writers, he always engages with the reader. Oh. His writing is full of rhetorical questions addressed to the reader. Yeah. And you have to be very alert. Uh-huh. There are no dull patches. Right. Where he just sets things out. He's always arguing. Yeah. So it's extremely lively, vivid, exhausting, and for that very reason... Um, stimulating and exciting yeah. and compelling. Yeah. It's almost like he appeals to a, a kind of conspiratorial mind, too, a sort of, you and I know the truth, don't we? Or or we know better than everyone else. We're smarter, we're stronger, we're greater. It feels like he's including me, but I kind of mm. have to, to rise to his level in order to be as, as bold or as, as courageous as he seems in his prose. That's a very good observation, actually. But to, to balance that, you have to remember that in his lifetime, or at least in his sane lifetime, because the last um, 10 years of his life, he was hopelessly insane. Mm -hmm. During his sane lifetime, he had very few readers. Mm. Most of his books were published at his own expense, and they didn't sell. Yeah. Um, he very much regretted the obscurity because he felt he had immensely important things to say. Yeah, <laughs> and, he, and that's why he was so delighted when he learned that the, the Danish um, critic Georg Brandes was giving lectures on his work to university audiences in Copenhagen. Um, mind you, that was on two books which Nietzsche had actually sent him as presents. Mm, right. <laughs> so I want to ask you later when we get to his biography about what motivated him, what made him think he had these great ideas that he needed to get out there. But before we get there, I wanted to ask about the flip side of his work being so compelling, and that is what makes us so uneasy. Nietzsche attacks a great many things that most people set a high value on. Mm. For example, the conventional virtues. Yeah. It's a great deal to say against compassion, and in fact, 
everything that goes under the head of humanitarianism or concern for others yeah. is condemned by him as a sign of weakness. So that's very hard to swallow. Mm. And speaking of myself, I can't read Nietzsche without constantly arguing with him and, and against him. Right. So it's one thing to to sort of smash the institutions because if he's, say, attacking the church, we can think to ourselves, well, yeah, there's probably corruption there or there's probably uh, some negativity involved with anything that's run by human beings and, and humans are flawed and so their institutions are flawed and we can kind of follow him down that path. But when he's attacking something that seems to us so important, like compassion, and so obviously good or virtuous, it becomes, on the one hand, it makes me pay more attention. On the other mm -hmm. hand, it makes me a little bit uneasy that, uh, what if everybody starts thinking this way, what kind of world would we live in? Well, indeed. But it's also salutary, because you have to ask why you believe yeah. in the things you believe in. Right. Um, why is compassion good? Nietzsche does give arguments against it, and he's not the only philosopher to have done so. Mm. In ancient Greece, the Stoics argued against compassion. Mm. One of the French moralists whom he draws on, um, La Rochefoucauld, um, has a great argument against compassion. This is the whole strand in moral philosophy to which Nietzsche belongs. Mm. So the argument against compassion, I remember one passage in Nietzsche that I never forgot where he said, I would rather that if a, a beggar was on the street, I would rather he came up and attacked me and took my money out of a show of brute strength rather mm -hmm. than asks me for it and appeals to my sense of guilt. And that doesn't do anyone any good. And it makes me feel kind of vaguely weaker for having the money. And it's demeaning to him to have to beg me for it. And it seems like that kind of argument, I had a harder time sorting through in my mind of, well, you know, I, I don't know exactly how I feel about this. I can kind of see his point. Mm. So can I. The thought which he recurs to a number of times is that um, compassion weakens the person who feels it mm. and also, of course, weakens the person who appeals for it. Yeah. Um, and he ties that into Christianity and says it makes the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, that's privileging the wrong people. Well, that's right. And when it comes to Nietzsche's attack on Christianity, he has a very striking passage. I think it's in The Antichrist, where he takes a number of passages from the New Testament and argues that their implications are quite different from the official ones. Mm. The meek shall inherit the earth, for example. What an ambition! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the meek are longing for power, longing to rule. Yeah. Nietzsche, don't forget, was, as he constantly says, a philologist a reader of texts, right? initially classical texts, and he's very good at close reading and reading against the grain. Mm. And in fact, he was a brilliant philologist, right? Yes, he was. Yeah, and could have had a career just doing that. He could have, but he got bored with it. Oh, right, okay. And his health broke down, but even before his early retirement on a pension in, I think, 1878, you find him in his letters, philology is terribly dull, and part of the objection was that classical studies at the universities taught young men everything about the Greeks except why they mattered. Mm. They taught people to conjugate irregular verbs and to compare one manuscript with another, but not um, why the Greeks were important to us, how the Greeks stood for values, which we no longer share, but ought to take seriously. Mm. 
Right. And was looking, this was sort of the birth of tragedy and that yes. uh, arguments that came out of that, where he was comparing the uh, Apollonian and the Dionysian. Yes, these two forces combined in Nietzsche's argument to make the Greek tragic theater. But tragedy declined rapidly. And that um, treatise, of presented as a work of academic scholarship, is very present-minded because, as you remember, it ends by praising Wagner and a new tragic theatre, which Wagner was about to open at Bayreuth. Mm. It kind of reminds me of the, the temperance movements where I hear mm. about people who are saying, let's get rid of all alcohol, and I think, well, why would you take away my glass of wine a month? I enjoy it, and I can handle <laughs> yes. it. But but mm-hmm. then again, if I went into a grocery store and, and everyone who worked there was slumped over on the floor drunk, I might think, well, maybe there's a point to this. It seems like mm-hmm. we think, well, Nietzsche is good. We should rescue what's interesting and what makes us think, but... It's dangerous if a political party adopts it as their guiding light, or if if there's a movement that gets too carried away with it, it could be dangerous. And so it seems like we've had different views of Nietzsche over time and kind of, you know, look at something like the rise of Nazism or something like that. I don't know that that's fair to project that backwards onto Nietzsche, but what do you make of that? And how has Nietzsche been presented by people to try to reconcile this issue. It it seems like in some ways people were canceling Nietzsche, to use kind of the modern word of it, but but also trying to kind of salvage it. But I don't know that they gave an accurate picture of Nietzsche. Okay. Well, first, it's not a matter of projecting 20th century political ideas back onto Nietzsche. You can find a lot in Nietzsche, um, more in his notebooks, which he never intended to publish, Mm. which anticipates fascism all too clearly. He hints very strongly at the value of eugenics, Mm. of deliberately breeding superior human beings. He he talks in a passage of Beyond Good and Evil about how future philosophers will be surgeons operating mercilessly on the body of humanity. Mm. And in his notebooks, he has some um, very shocking thoughts of the necessity to kill a very large number of human beings who are diseased, degenerate, or otherwise inferior. Mm. Now, don't forget that in the early 20th century, Nietzsche was known not only through the published works, the works published in his lifetime, but also through the book called The Will to Power. Mm. Mm-hmm. He didn't write that uh, as a book. Everything in it is taken from his unpublished notebooks and was put together by his sister with various assistants yeah. as a coherent treatise on the decline of values in modern times and how values should be restored. And simply as a piece of writing that's far inferior to his published works, where everything was very carefully polished. Um, but because it looks like it set out like a systematic treatise, which very few of his published works are, it seemed to be a compendium of Nietzsche's thought and was very widely read. It's still in print both from English and German although it should come with a health warning. Yeah. And so to anticipate a question people always ask, I think the influence of Nietzsche's thought on Nazism um, was real and undeniable. Mm. Um, as for cancelling, I don't on the whole think one should cancel people. I think one should argue against them. Right. And if you don't like them, you don't have to go to the lectures or, or read the books. So I don't think we should burn Nietzsche, but I think we should read him carefully, mm-hmm. um, when we find a passage that shocks us, we should be shocked. Yeah. 
Is it a danger not to burn Nietzsche or ban his books, but is it a danger to try to sort of clean them up and to say, let's leave out the truly destructive passages or the the worst of the worst and let's not publish that, but let's focus instead on the things that are more about language or more, you know, some of the ideas that aren't as anti-women and so on. Is that a problem? It seems like that could almost make Nietzsche into kind of a gateway drug where people would would start to defend him and get very wrapped up in it and then maybe discover yeah. some of the worst parts after that. Well, this question tends to arise when one is teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I've retired now, but I taught Nietzsche to undergraduates and graduate students yeah. for many, many years. And I must confess, I did rather shy away from the, the, the shocking parts, but I didn't deny their existence. If you're teaching, you have to choose what to present to your students. Mm-hmm. Um, after all, if you show them a text in which Nietzsche advocates murdering millions of people, the students may rightly say, why are you telling us to read this? Yeah, right. But most of Nietzsche is not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best expositors of Nietzsche was um, the late um, Walter Kaufmann, mm-hmm. a professor at Princeton, who brought out in 1950 what is still a very good book called Nietzsche, Philosopher, Psychologist, Antichrist. Now, Philosopher is obvious. Psychologist, Nietzsche's works are full of very, very astute observations. On, on, on human psychology, on how people behave, how they try to dominate others, how they, how they deceive themselves, and so on. It wasn't for nothing that he was an avid reader of the French moralists like La Rochefoucauld, who I mentioned earlier. Mm. So Nietzsche as a psychologist, I think, can certainly stand alongside Freud. In fact, in many ways, I think I'd rather have Nietzsche as a psychologist than Freud. Mm. As a third element in Kaufman's title, Antichrist, that of course is very catchy, but Nietzsche does make a concerted assault on Christianity, um, partly motivated by his coming from a religious Protestant yeah. household. Yeah. His father, who died when he was very young, was a Lutheran clergyman, and his um, case against Christianity is, I think, strong, is crude, and is one-sided, and he doesn't admit that um, Christianity has helped to make people like Pascal into subtle thinkers and psychologists. Mm. That Christianity has given us spiritually profound music, like that of Bach and Palestrina. But by and large, his um, attack on Christianity is integral to his work and quite hard to dismiss. So I think Kaufman was presenting aspects of Nietzsche that were really important. And although he's been attacked for sanitizing Nietzsche, you must remember he's writing in the late 1940s. Yeah, right. When the good side of Nietzsche had to be rescued mm-hmm. from what the Nazis had made of him. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the clergy background, I was surprised to see in your book that Nietzsche actually revered his father and, and thought of him as angelic and was proud of him. I had always kind of assumed that his father was probably some stern taskmaster who was cold and withdrawing and, and that that probably helped to form some of Nietzsche's worldview. But it sounds like, I mean, apart from 
his father dying young. So maybe it didn't really form him, except his memory was forming him more than his actual presence. But I, I was surprised to hear he had such a, a reverence. You'd think in some ways that would have made him strongly pro-Christian and, and in favor of the church based on his feelings about his father. Yes, well, it's quite likely that Pastor Nietzsche, Ludwig Nietzsche, was a very fine man. He was certainly much admired by his colleagues and, and parishioners. Mm-hmm. But don't forget that he died when his son Friedrich was four. Mm-hmm. And young Nietzsche had every temptation to idealize right. his father. Yeah. On the other hand, he was very critical of his mother. Poor woman did her best by him. Um, I think in one of these cases where the parent who is safely dead is idealized, and the parent who's still alive gets all the stick. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Sort of a, the feeling, I must be adopted, or I'm, my real parents must be somewhere else. Things would be better for me if I didn't have you. If I had the the one who passed away, he'd make everything better. Well, Nietzsche actually has that idea. In his um, autobiography, Eki Homo, which is a really unbalanced book, written when his mind was in steep decline, he actually says that um, he has nothing to do with his mother or his sister, mm. that he's not German but Polish. Mm. There's absolutely not, not an atom of truth in this. <laughs> um, so it really is a Freudian family romance. Yeah, right. Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about more about Nietzsche's life and how to make sense of that. Okay, we are back with Professor Richie Robertson, author of A Critical Lives book on Friedrich Nietzsche. Professor Robertson, before I ask you more about Nietzsche's biography and things in his life, I wanted to ask about your experience teaching Nietzsche. And we have this this sort of popular culture view, maybe it's a myth, of the people who are reading Nietzsche. Often it's some gun-crazed young man who's it's sort of a stand-in. It's kind of like a joke on the screen that if he's reading mm-hmm. Nietzsche, that means he's going to be immoral and and probably uh, you know selfish mm-hmm. and and so on. And do you find with your students that you can kind of look out at the at the audience and say, "I can tell who's going to be really into Nietzsche and who's going to be turned off by him," or or are you surprised by the way he resonates with different types of students? Oh, my experience is not like that. Um, I've never had a gun-crazed student. Mm-hmm. Um, students read Nietzsche with interest mm-hmm. and enthusiasm, a good deal of puzzlement. Yeah. I'm quite sure none of them have been corrupted or were at all likely to be. Uh-huh. Um, Nietzsche feels very remote. Mm. Um, he was, after all, writing in the late 19th century against the background of the new German Empire, um, which he despised, um, that historical distance, I think, is quite important. You have to work, therefore, to show that Nietzsche is writing about problems which are still with us. For example, his case against democracy, such as he knew it in the 19th century, and against modern society more generally, is that um, it's 
too soft, is overcome by humanitarianism, it favors the weak at the expense of the strong, it nurtures the weak instead of allowing them to die. In Britain, we still set great store by the National Health Service. Mm. I would say it's an important part of our identity for many people in Britain. Hold, <laughs> hold that against your reading of Nietzsche, you've got um, a clash of values yeah. and plenty of material for, for discussion. So that's a case where concern for the weak is really relevant and can be brought into play and should be. Yeah, right. And the, the question is, are we as a society, are we better or worse if we demonstrate compassion? Because you do have to make these tough choices of what is a quality of life? Where do we put our resources? Do we save yeah. a 98-year-old man who's going to be living a, a miserable life? Do we do everything possible to prolong that life, even if it's at the expense of a a five-year-old who might need a surgery that would help them live a long and, and productive life and so on. And the question of, you know, it'd be very easy to take a Nietzschean view and kind of say, uh, well, let the chips fall where they may. The weak need to, to die out. But is that good for us to be thinking that way as a whole? It seems like it would turn us all into monsters. Well, these are questions that uh, rightly exercise moral philosophers of the present day mm-hmm. and demand very delicate handling. I would save the five-year-old and renounce an operation for myself at the age I've got to. Mm-hmm. Um, whether one can make that choice on behalf of another person is another matter. But Nietzsche doesn't actually deal with these fine-grained moral decisions. He's much more broad brush, I think too much so. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't really help with valid questions like how do you distribute your resources to the best advantage? Mm-hmm. Right. How is he viewed by professional philosophers? Are they wary of his popularity and his the way his writing style has made him one of the more readable philosophers and that the, the ordinary public has more access to him maybe than others? Or are they... Do they admire him? Do they do they also kind of value the way he was able to convey his thoughts? And do they think his, his thoughts are important to the tradition and development of philosophy? Well, professional philosophers are very various. Mm. One of my oldest friends is a quite eminent philosopher of a very different kind from Nietzsche. And when I told him I was teaching Nietzsche to undergraduates in German and encouraging them to analyze his style, my friend said, Nietzsche was probably a better stylist than he was a philosopher. Yeah, right. Um, my friend is a logician, so Nietzsche has nothing to say to him or he to Nietzsche. Um, I think if you're um, a moral philosopher, mm-hmm. then there's a great deal in Nietzsche that demands your attention. Yeah. If only to argue with. He was, for example, um, much studied by the late Bernard Williams, um, an eminent moral philosopher. So I think moral philosophers especially take Nietzsche seriously if only as a source of stimulating arguments. Um, as with his accessibility, um, yes and no to that. In my experience, students studying Nietzsche find him very difficult. And curiously, I have occasionally told Nietzsche to graduates who didn't know German and were reliant on English texts, and they found him very hard indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be harder to understand in English. And in, in fact, there are many slippery key words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and problems which are evaded in English translation. On the other hand, his relative accessibility is not like reading Kant, for example, and his reputation make him a very attractive subject for university courses. Yeah, right. 
history in America, and many major philosophers have taught Nietzsche. The question is how you do so. Um, he's a very unorthodox philosopher, and a temptation for philosophers is to translate him into their own conceptual language. But if you do that, I think you lose what is unique to Nietzsche. I think um, one has, if possible, to treat Nietzsche both as a thinker and as a writer. His writing is inseparable from his thought. Um, to look at his language, his style, his rhetoric, mm-hmm. the many ways in which he tries to win over the reader, the ways in which he cheats, in fact, yeah. and consider that as well as the very serious problems that he deals with. He reminds me in that sense of Plato, where uh-huh. I, I don't really read Plato for truth. I read him to inspire my own search for truth, which is another yeah. good analogy with Nietzsche. But he is so readable. He's almost like a, you could imagine him writing a novel that uh, would be, you know, a bestseller. Do you think <laughs> uh, Do you think Nietzsche would be okay with me comparing him with Plato? I know he, he kind of hated Socrates, right? Would he? <laughs> oh, sure, yes. But more generally, I see the part of the comparison, and when you read the dialogues, um, you wonder, especially if, like me, you don't know Greek, um, how far Socrates is cheating, yeah, how right. far he's browbeating exactly. his, his opponents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think the Socratic dialogues require an equally um, suspicious reading. Mm-hmm. Socrates, for Nietzsche, is the type of the man who doesn't understand tragedy and who thinks that everything is an intellectual problem that can be solved. Whereas for Nietzsche, some things are just too deep and are problems we have to live with and can't expect to solve. I can remember reading Nietzsche as a college student and, and feeling like I didn't have to run out and follow all of his views, but he was not just engaging me and, and making me think harder about why I thought what I thought, but he was actually inspiring me to be more active and to live life more fully. And I kind Mm -hmm. of ended up feeling like you could be inspired by that and say, I want to be a great souled person, but then also be Mm -hmm. compassionate and also be, you know, but it it did give me this kind of energy. Um, Mm. Is that something that you're, you found with your students or am I just uh, an anomaly? I'm not sure whether each of that effects outside the classroom, (laughs) an effect he certainly should have. Yeah. Um, one of the great themes in Nietzsche is, is individualism. Mm-hmm. Everybody is an individual, but mostly we, we forget it. Yeah. We use second-hand language. We do second-hand actions. Yeah. We don't ask, who am I? He has an, an early essay called Schopenhauer as Educator, mm-hmm. which is not really about Schopenhauer, and which contains a very, very good formulation of the importance and the difficulty of being or becoming an, an individual. Mm. And if you take that lesson to Nietzsche, then I think you learn something that valuable. Yeah. I also learned from your book, I don't know why I missed this before, maybe I was exposed to it and it just went over my head or something. I remembered Schopenhauer, I remembered Feuerbach. I had forgotten that he was a reader of Emerson, uh, oh, yes. which uh, is mm-hmm. really, yeah, is really fascinating to see the the way that he used Emerson and adapted him for his own purposes. I actually had not thought about that. Well, Nietzsche mentioned Emerson only very seldom mm. until an American friend reminded me. Then I looked into the matter, and I can see that Emerson was very important for him at an early age. Mm-hmm. And there are traces of Emerson throughout. But it's very, very hard to put your finger on what Emerson meant 
for him. But I think part of it is individualism. Yeah, right. And this self-reliance. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm. So I still am not really clear on what motivated Nietzsche. Do you get the sense as you look through the course of his life that at some point something flipped and he thought everything around me is wrong and I'm smarter than everyone or or what what inspired him to take these bold positions and to to say I've got ideas that need to get out there in the world well I think he, he was smarter than most other people mm-hmm. um, he had original ideas he wanted to, to make them known um, he wasn't too much concerned with pleasing his public mm-hmm um, when he published The Birth of Tragedy, one professor of classics said, this book does not exist for, for scholarship. Um, <laughs> um, right. His motive throughout was to get important ideas out there, mm-hmm. and I don't think he ever made a penny from his books. Wow, yeah. Did he ever have a, I mean, I know he was had a, a relationship with Wagner and, and some other people, but did he ever find someone who, one of his contemporaries, who he thought was a good sparring partner for him or who could engage with him on his level, or was he just writing these books and sending them off into the void? It's actually surprising when you think of it, how isolated Nietzsche was. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a number of friends, and he set great store by friendship. The only philosopher whom he knew personally was a man called Paul Ray, who developed in German ideas taken from the British empiricists like Hume, um, um, they fell out over a woman. Mm. Um, they're both in love with the, the fascinating Lou Andrea oh, Salome. I know. I've got to do um, a whole episode on her. She, she is. She had quite a. Uh, she had quite a life with the the men that she was uh, intertwining yes. with. Yeah. Yep. Um, very remarkable and intelligent woman. Um, who wrote some memorable fiction as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer your question, Nietzsche tended to little society. Um, he, st- he stayed sometimes in hotels and boarding houses and had some dealings with people he met there and was always extremely charming but reserved. Mm. We have many accounts of uh, conversations with Nietzsche, but uh, isolation is the keynote of his life. And of course, living inside your own head mm. is not in the end a, a very good thing. Yeah. It tends to make you obsessive and to believe fanatically in your own ideas, right? rather than subjecting them to healthy criticism. Yeah, and the more he was sort of landing on deaf ears, maybe the more it was pushing him toward a feeling that only he could see the truth, or that that there weren't plausible alternatives, or that he was kind of beyond criticism. Yes, in fact, his, his late letters, me from the, the year 1888, um, are all in that vein. Um, they're also very self-centered, even narcissistic, but that's to make up for the isolation he lived in and the way he felt his writings were being ignored Mm. by the intellectual world. Yeah, right. Okay, so last question. I'm going to encourage listeners to read your book before they turn to Nietzsche's writings, because I think it really helps to frame and uh, prepare readers for what they'll find there. What would you recommend of Nietzsche's that we read first? I think I would recommend The Genealogy of Morals. Mm, mm-hmm. For one thing, it's a connected treatise, although full of digressions. Um, it contains some of Nietzsche's most interesting and original ideas mm-hmm. about psychology and morals and the development of society. It's a very, very rich book, at times a shocking one. 
you have to take it slowly, and if you don't understand a passage, leave it and and come back later. Mm. But it's it's worth a lot of effort. Okay, well, the book is Friedrich Nietzsche, part of Reaction Books' Critical Live series. Professor Richie Robertson, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. You're very welcome. Thank you for your questions. Okay, there we go. Friedrich Nietzsche. Time to dip back into those waters. Is it a swimming pool for you or a raging sea? I'm not sure. Maybe it's a lake. Who knows? A pond? Maybe an old swimming hole where teenagers swim naked at night. I don't know what kind of waters Nietzsche is. I just know that they're deep enough for your whole body to be submerged in for a while, and you will need to come up for air at some point. My thanks to Professor Richie Robertson for joining me today. His book is definitely a good place to start in learning about Nietzsche's life and his works and his legacy, how he's been viewed across time and place. Professor Robertson is also going to help us with Goethe, that white whale we've been hunting all these years. Sometimes you need a Virgil to help you get your mind around these things, and he is that. And I am Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.